This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week, a TVNZ documentary lifted the lid on the cost of white-collar crime. While society and the media fixate on gang crimes, ram raids and other forms of street crime, white-collar criminals have been robbing us blind. We've seen a 91% increase in scam incidents. Costs estimate half a billion dollars. More than a million dollars a day. A staggering $750 million a year. But while the gangs, ram raids and robberies generate vivid images and keep news reporters busy, who's reporting on the economic crime that's costing us much more dearly? Also this week, New Zealand rugby's been panned for overlapping the Black Ferns and the All Blacks at the same time this weekend, while top Auckland schools don't want their top players on TV anymore at all. The likes of King's College, Sacred Heart, Auckland Grammar, St Kent's. More woke, more of the cancel culture. The decision is incomprehensible. So what are they going to do now? But first, the spectacular demise of a Prime Minister in the UK certainly kept our media busy this week, but some here found time to suggest we might have a change at the top in Wellington. But based on what exactly? I tell you what, she'll be gutted to be back in New Zealand now, won't she? <laughs> I mean, it's the one place she doesn't want to be right now, so she's gone to Antarctica, flown about two hours and had to turn around. <laughs> That was News Talk ZB's political editor Barry Soper having a laugh with ZB Drive host Heather Duplessy-Allen about the Prime Minister's abortive trip to Antarctica last Tuesday. I'll tell you what a hell of a flight that is. I know you've done it. I've done it uh, on the old uh, Hercules uh, with the webbing seats. Not much fun uh, and very loud. And not much fun and loud might also describe how the Prime Minister might just feel about the rumours about her future which have been flying around in the media this past week. Now, the reason ZB's Heather Duplessy Ellen reckoned Ardern would rather be in Antarctica than Aotearoa was the political pressure piling up on her government, which was why Heather Duplessy Ellen asked her other half this last Tuesday. Is the Prime Minister going to quit before the next election? Well, I guess that's the $64,000 question, isn't it? That um, There has been a lot of chatter, there's no doubt about that, and that's been going on for some months now. But why was months-old chatter about her throwing in the towel coming up again now? You only have to look at her body language to see that. But look, um, I went back over a a few interviews she did uh, some years ago. Uh, She never wanted to be the Prime Minister. She said that um, uh, she's seen how hard it is to raise a family in that role. And that was an interview she did in 2014. A year later, she was stating it more bluntly. She said she didn't want to be Prime Minister. Things have changed for Jacinda Ardern since she said those things back in 2014 becoming Prime Minister and winning an election being some of the main ones. But according to Barry Soper, body language and the precedence of John Key and David Longy bailing out before being voted out were reasons to believe now that the upcoming Labour Party conference might just see change at the top. Uh, You'd have to be pretty brave to say that uh, she is going to step down. But look, I think uh, the idea of uh, her going into the next election and being unpopular uh, could well be too much for us. Have you ever been told by anybody close to the Prime Minister that she might not want to see it out? Um, I've been told that uh, if she does win next year, then the likelihood of her completing a third term would be very remote indeed. Right. So, yeah. so if you were to try and write a news story out of that, it would be something like political editor guesses PM might step down soon based on body language and historical precedent, or maybe after the next election, according to one unnamed source. While the Prime Minister was away, briefly, her deputy Grant Robertson took over her weekly media round and on the AM show on 3 on Tuesday, he was asked if he wanted her job. 
Well, I think we've discussed this before. We've got an excellent Prime Minister, and I said many, many years ago that I, I wasn't going to put myself through the, the leadership contest inside the Labour Party. But the co-host Patrick Gower reckoned the Deputy PM would take the promotion here if he could. Robbo would like to do a Rishi if he could. Don't worry about what he's saying there. <laughs> Robbo would do a Rishi uh, any day of the week and take the reins. And I'll tell you what. And there were a fair few others in the media telling us what they reckoned about that this past week too. But as Grant Robertson said there, we've been here before. In fact, on the self-same AM show at this point a year ago. Uh, Jacinda Ardern is around for a good time, not necessarily a really long time. Do you think she's going to tap out soon? Well, I don't know that. Uh, I'm hearing it speculated, uh, but people do say these things. Well, they certainly did back then, though Jacinda Ardern still leads her party and the country. Nevertheless, one year on, the headline, The Increasing Speculation About Jacinda Ardern Quitting, appeared on the Herald's homepage last Tuesday. Its author, Dr Bryce Edwards, boasted on Twitter, top story on the Herald website. And in it, the director of critical politics at Victoria University of Wellington said this... The idea of her stepping down before the next election is gaining traction. But with whom? Well, firstly, with him. Dr Edwards said that on election night in 2020, he himself had predicted Ardern wouldn't see out the whole term as PM. And now he says it might still suit Ardern to get out of politics before things get even worse. But was anyone else thinking that? Well, Dr Edwards noted that the Herald's Claire Trevette confirmed rumours of Ardern stepping down had been put to journalists these days, though he didn't say by whom, and neither did Claire Trevette in her column in the Weekend Herald, in which she said they were wrong anyway. As things stand, she remains Labour's best chance in 2023, and is still more popular and trusted than any other leader. I'd be very surprised if she cut and run while that is the case. And that was also the view of News Talk ZB Deputy Political Editor Jason Walls this week in an episode of the Herald's podcast Front Page, which was all about Ardern's past and her future. Jacinda Ardern is the Labour Party to many, many, many voters. She was incredibly popular. I mean, after COVID-19, her preferred prime minister rating was up in the 60s, almost hitting to the 70 percent in some polls. So it was absolutely out of this world stratospheric. We haven't seen anything like that. Even John Key, I don't think, got to that, those levels of popularity. Now they've come back down to earth, but they're still quite high. Now, Jason Walls did say there were dangers in Labour relying on Ardern's sliding popularity, but not that she was about to bail out. So was there anyone who was saying that Ardern might quit, pointing to anyone else who was actually saying so? Well, Dr Edwards picked out one who was, as ZB's Perry Soper put it, brave enough to predict that. It's time to jump now. Um, also, she has one child who, uh, and may only have one child, you know, and the years are ticking on. So, you know, I imagine there's a desire in her too to have a little bit more time to herself in the immediate next year or two. Well, we won't ask you to bet the house on it, Rachel, but uh, we will most <laughs> certainly watch with interest. Thanks very much for coming in. Rachel Smalley on October the 14th talking about her NBR opinion column that day. If I had to bet my house on it, I would pick Jacinda Ardern to announce that she is stepping down before Christmas. She won't lead the Labour Party into the next election. She can't. The announcement must surely be coming. Well, that was two weeks ago, so what made her so sure? Well, this week she returned to that theme on her Today FM show. She could stand down, possibly, as early as Christmas. And over the weekend, my phone exploded. People wanted to know if I had the inside word. What did I know? Did I get a leak from within the beehive? No, none of those things. However, it makes sense, and here's why I think Ardern won't seek a third term. And she went on to outline that stuff. The fact that the Labour caucus can more easily replace a leader, some unpromising polling, policy delivery problems and economic headwinds. And also, Smalley said, I don't think she's very good with numbers. 
She knows that. We know that. So I reckon she'll jump. But reckon is the operative word there. It is possible Rachel Smalley might be right, and if it does happen soon, it will be a closely guarded secret, and you wouldn't expect anyone who knew about it to go on the record in the media with it. But Rachel Smalley and others predicting it are just guessing and creating content while they're at it, even on a network which loudly promises news that moves us forward. And in the UK, there's been wall-to-wall coverage of its governing party there playing Prime Minister go-round lately, and the media are getting the message from the people there that it's the crises really affecting them that really matter. I just want to say, what a waste of time, all of this. It's just, it's just a sideshow. You've got a war in Ukraine going on. You've got people who haven't had electricity, gas and water for two or three days. And all the economic and political glitterati can do in this country is waffle on something about irrelevant. Who's going to be the next prime minister? You are a disgrace. And there was plenty more where that came from for the media in the UK this past week. I took a look at that in Midweek Media Watch this week on Nights with Karen Hay. And we also talked about more PR problems for the public media entity and how another radio host full of opinions every day insulted an entire country. I've already had a text from the Rwandan honorary consul, not a joke, telling me off for laughing at Rwanda. That's Midweek Media Watch on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website, our section of the RNZ app, or you'll find it in our podcast feed, available wherever you get your podcasts. Now, also on this week's Midweek Media Watch, I rounded up some of the recent reactions to the government's proposed public media entity, now strongly opposed by many other media companies. Though on last weekend's News Hub Nation show, NBR writer Dita Deboney made this point. Now, why can't the New Zealand taxpayer have its own entity that is only concerned with public broadcasting? Um, I, I just don't see why the private sector are crying so much about it. They already get a lot of help. Dita Deboney has in the past worked out both the outfits being replaced by the new public media entity, TVNZ and RNZ, and she said that, in her opinion, TVNZ had strayed so far from the notion of public service broadcasting that it could undermine the new entity. But lately, the sort of documentaries which were once common on TV1 back in the day have been back, in between Eat Well for Less and Coronation Street on a Tuesday night. A series of eight documentary New Zealand films, funded by you via New Zealand On Air, have explored issues like online dating, privacy, autism, anxiety, and next week's one, Web of Chaos, examines the effect of online disinformation, an urgent topic that the media has wrestled with all year. And as Hayden Donnell now reports, this week's TVNZ documentary New Zealand doco also raised some questions for the media. Next time you have an egg sandwich, spare a thought for the humble hen. That's Mike McRoberts introducing the 60-minute story Foul Play, F-O-W-L, back in 2004. That one-two combo of clock ticking and McRoberts' mellifluous voice hasn't been heard by New Zealand TV audiences in a long time. The presenter left the show a year later, and 60 Minutes has since stopped producing local stories. It's not the only documentary powerhouse to have shut up shop on local content in recent years. 2020, while still on air, mainly releases repackaged content from the US. Despite the continuing success of long-form journalism on TV One Sunday, documentaries have been fading from New Zealand screens for some time. Lately, though, TVNZ has taken steps to revive the genre, airing a series of NZ On Air-funded docos on TV One and its streaming service, TVNZ Plus. 
One engaging, often moving instalment came Tuesday last week when it aired No Māori Allowed. The documentary delves into the history of Pukekohe, where for decades Māori were subject to discrimination and sometimes violence. My mum turned around and looked at him. Just as she turned, he punched her in the face. His bleed, she fell to the ground. Then he started kicking her. On the third time he lifted his foot, I jumped on my mum. No Māori allowed deftly navigate several tensions, first between local Pākehā and Māori who were there for the era of segregated movie theatres, but also between the people trying to bring the area's past to light and the kuia and komatua who lived through it and still bear the scars. In my mind, no one owns history. History belongs to everyone. It's our story, and it's our story that belongs to us. And there are many stories that you don't know that took place here in Pukekoe. But I just finished saying it's about how we move forward now. Kia ora. If No Māori Allowed is about historical racism, this week's documentary Crime, Need versus Greed trains its eye on a more modern form of racial and economic injustice. Host Tim McKinnell sums up the central theme of the documentary like this. Dishonesty crimes like robbery and burglary are on the slow decline, while fraud and deception, aided by technology, have overtaken everything else. While society and the media fixate on gang crimes, ram raids and other forms of street crime, white-collar criminals have been robbing us blind. Not only have they been robbing us blind, they've been getting away with it. McKennell notes that courtrooms and jails are overflowing with poorer people who are disproportionately Māori. They're being prosecuted over sometimes minor street crimes, while white-collar criminals, who are disproportionately Pākehā, often avoid punishment altogether. Here's tax law specialist Lisa Marriott delivering some staggering statistics on the double standards for fraudsters in the justice system. The sentencing for average tax offending of 287,000, tax offenders had a 22% chance of receiving a prison sentence, that's for tax evasion. Now for welfare fraud, for average offending of 67,000, so about a quarter, uh, they had a 60% chance of receiving a prison sentence. The lack of consequences for white-collar crime belies its scale and impact. In 2014, an investigation by the New Zealand Herald journalist Matt Nippett helped trigger a $1.7 billion fraud prosecution against the company's South Canterbury Finance. He makes this observation to McKinnell about the sums involved. That was a huge disaster economically. This was, you know, one of New Zealand's largest companies worth $1.5 billion, and it gave me an appreciation of sort of the the scale of what was going on. That's a $900 million cost borne by every taxpayer in New Zealand, more than every treaty settlement combined in New Zealand's history. That's, you know, 100 years of benefit fraud. Given those figures, you have to ask why benefit fraud or street crime often gets so much more attention, not just from the justice system, but from the media, and what can be done to balance the scales. I put those questions to Matt Nippett. Kia ora, Matt. Welcome to Media Watch. Oh, thanks for having me, Hayden. The documentary Crime, Need versus Greed, it talks about how the system needs to change its approach to prosecuting crime to actually prioritise the ones that are costing us the most. Do we, as journalists, need to change 
our approach to how we write about crime as well. Maybe not. I think we just need to perhaps uh, there to be a, a high level of numeracy. Uh, the problem with financial crime, particularly high-end financial crime, is the human brain does very strange things when it sees zeros. And so therefore the difference between 10 million and 100 million becomes quite um, ethereal. Um, but everyone can understand what $1,000 in the hand looks like. But and everyone can see an image of someone ram-raiding a shop and go, I wouldn't like that to happen to me, whereas sometimes the financial crimes are very complex and hard to understand. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I think, look, I, th- I think ram raids are a, a quite a violent, shocking act and sh- should be covered. It also has the advantage of effectively being a, a prescripted sort of action heist movie with um, you know, car crashes and getaways and splitting the loot, and it's all condensed down to this one moment of action, uh, whereas sort of white-collar financial crimes often occur very subtly, very carefully, very deceptively over years, sometimes decades, and it's, you know, the comparison between a Jerry Brockheimer action flick and something uh, much more slow and sedate, uh, a documentary spread across, say, six episodes. Uh, and the trials can take ages. Look, I've sat through days of evidence just listening to one forensic accountant reconstruct s- several thousand transactions. It is more complex. When you, it, well, it feels more complex when you're sitting in court, but really, I mean, the principle is the same. I mean, someone's stolen money from someone else. One's just done it uh, far more carefully and deliberately and less violently than the other. How do we get more coverage of this type of crime? Is it just that journalists are afraid of spreadsheets? <laughs> no, I, I would hope they're not afraid of spreadsheets. I, no, I think it's uh, more a matter of often white-collar crime's been consigned to the business section, um, while the sort of uh, general uh, crime and court reporting often goes to the general section. It's a problem, though, isn't it? Because the documentary talks about the lack of consequences for this type of crime, the lack of investigation for this type of crime is causing distortions in the justice system. So is the amount of coverage of it compared to the amount of coverage of normal crime creating distortions in the media system. I'm always in favour of more fraud stories, but then again, I'm effectively a fraud reporter. I think it, when I was at the Sunday Star Times, um, I was nicknamed Fraud Boy. I'd like to think now I'm sort of more fraud man. Yes. But how to solve this? Um, a bit more numeracy from reporters and understanding uh, how significant some of these larger cases are. I've covered some individual cases that are equivalent to like an entire decade of benefit fraud, for instance. You know, all the benefit fraud in New Zealand for 10 years is equivalent to this one case. And I think it's important to uh, point out for readers that some of these cases are alarming and we should be paying close attention because that $100 million lost isn't just $100 million from some insurance company that's likely to be, you know, a thousand families who have lost their nest egg, or if you know the government has to bail it out, suddenly that's another. Yeah, well, certainly when South Canterbury went under in 2010, um, the amount paid out, I think it was 1.6 billion, was pretty much equivalent to what had been paid out to treaty settlements at the time. I should note that South Canterbury had a 10-year liquidation process, and the Crown managed to haul back sort of 800 million. But the point there wasn't to say. Um, we're spending too much on one or the other, but rather than just this one corporate failure was so enormous, it's, you know, it's a percentage point of GDP. It's equivalent to all our efforts to date to sort of wrestle with historic injustice. It would be really good to understand what led to this so you can hopefully prevent it happening again. And I think that's something um, regulators and authorities need to take on board as well because letting a couple of those big cases slip through the cracks can have enormous consequences, you know, far worse than um, a rogue gang of ram raiders. 
And to be fair, there's quite a lot of coverage I've noticed in recent years. I think this is partly through trends that um, there's been a lot more coverage of sort of the the personal scams and frauds. You know, the the stuff you get sent through texts. You know, encouraging you to to click here for a refund or to collect your package, uh, and often those are just um, levers for scammers to get in, and they'll try cleaning you out one way or another. And there has been more coverage of that recently, and that that's been quite heartening because those are uh, individually sort of more than most burglaries would net. Is this another area where open justice, your court reporting, uh, public interest journalism funded program, is actually helping? Because I think there's I've covered some scammers and some people that have defrauded others. I mean, it's great to have more coverage from court, um, and it's great that my colleagues at Open Justice are doing that. Um, but I think the real big problem, as uh, Tim McKinnell highlighted in that doco with white collar crime, is reporting rates are actually extraordinarily low. Um, so often, a lot of these cases are sort of quietly. Um, settled, where they'll try to get as much money back from the offender as possible, and then they'll, they'll be left to go on their way. So I don't think putting more reporters in court will help, would allow us to capture really the true scale of what's going on. The documentary does a really good job of highlighting racism and classism in the justice system. There's an example that I think of, a woman talking about conviction rates for white-collar criminals that have stolen $287,000 on average, was 22%. Benefit fraudsters that stolen $60,000, so I think it was about a quarter, they get convicted and sent to jail at a 60% rate. So is there racism and classism at play in the media sector as well? Do we spend disproportionate amounts of time and energy condemning lower-level offenders that come from more desperate backgrounds I think it's it's more structural um, and also economic. The issues you get with uh, crime reportage in sort of the mainstream media is that often it comes from court and courts are <laughs> a reflection of wider problems. So you will tend to get disadvantaged people in the district court, for instance, facing charges. Uh, on the other side of it, when you're looking at sort of white-collar crimes, which, you know, uh, typically are committed by those who are well-off, uh, largely white, largely male, largely older. Uh, but that group uh, often has resources for lawyers. I mean, I've run into suppression orders many, many times. Uh, basically, every story I write in the space gets legally vetted, sort of maybe uh, dampens down the reporting, but also slows it down enormously. I mean, it's not something you can sort of crash out day after day. It's more of a week-by-week process. Do white-collar criminals get an easier go in the media as well? Well, easier than other criminals, yes. They'll tend to get covered less. If you publish that you think uh, this entity is dodgy and will collapse and you'll lose all your money, um, if they did collapse, would be at a, like an arguable case pointing to you saying, you caused the collapse of my $400 million business, uh, and that's what I'm going to sue you for. I mean, in terms of defamation risk, that's the big one I saw 10 years ago, that there was a widespread concern amongst uh, sort of well-informed financial sector that many of these finance companies were very um, very shaky ground um, but no one could really say it publicly so it was all sort of hedged with sort of long dense um, discussions about balance sheet structuring and saying maybe do they have enough working capital when really between the lines it was basically um, a flashing red light I don't see an easy way around that but um, that's the uh, the issues the sort of the coalface white collar reporter faces. Matt, you started out at the NBR doing this sort of stuff. Do we still have the same kind of dedicated business press that we did back then? 
have we lost a little bit of our uh, business reporting ecosystem, business desk and others notwithstanding? Uh, yeah, I mean, there have been casualties since then. I mean, I think when I started, uh, the Independent was still running. Uh, that obviously got swallowed by um, Fairfax and stuff and then magicked away. Uh, stuff itself seems to focus a lot more on sort of consumer news. Um, but also in that time, you've seen the rise of Business Desk, which is like a really solid business news publication. I mean, they, um, I think they give us at the Herald a pretty good run for our money, which is probably why um, NZME bought them. Yeah. If any part of the newsroom should be expanded, it's clearly mine. <laughs> it's the problem that the, the people that want to go into journalism, they don't often have brains like that, and I count myself among this. Is it that the people in our industry don't have the right types of brains and right types of dispositions? I, don't, I, I used to think I didn't have that sort of brain, um, but then I was uh, made redundant, and basically the only job I could get was a business reporter at NBR, and you know, if you give it a go, I think you'll find it's a lot more straightforward than um, you've uh, conditioned yourself to, to fear. You've mentioned there are other reporters doing great work in this area. Do you feel a little bit lonely in your round? And how do we produce more Matt Nippets? <laughs> uh, well, you should all learn how to use spreadsheets because they're amazing. I, I don't do anything fancy with them. I just mainly use them to add numbers up because um, it's like an automatic calculator. It's amazing. I mean, I sort of got where I am with this just doing like one first-year accountancy paper at Vic. Um, I think I got a B for it too. And that, just sort of understanding the basics of a balance sheet, so when you read an annual report, you don't think it's some sort of alien document, and you can sort of flick through and, again, read, always read from the back, but that would be my advice. I mean, it'd be great to see, you know, some board accountants deciding, actually, I'd rather not be writing very uh, bland notes to the accounts. Instead, I'm going to, you know, write the same note in a more interesting way on the front page, which is effectively how I see a lot of my work going. Just like Tim McKinnell, in a way, former police detective now talking about injustices in the justice system. Yeah, well... Tim's doing great work. I mean, I've um, used him as a source for many other stories. But, I mean, he's freed a man from prison, which is actually even better than putting someone in there. Thank you very much, Matt Nippett. No worries, Hayden. That was Matt Nippett, the business investigations reporter for the New Zealand Herald, who specialises in stories about fraud and corruption, and who featured in last week's documentary New Zealand film Need vs Greed that was screened on TVNZ1 and can still be seen on demand at TVNZ+. And finally this weekend on Media Watch, when the Black Ferns kicked off their home Women's Rugby World Cup against the Aussies earlier this month, TBNZ Sports Bulletin that night began, appropriately enough, with the crowd filing into Eden Park for the biggest game of women's rugby ever held here. Kia ora, welcome to sport. It's kick-off time. The Women's Rugby World Cup underway in New Zealand with 40,000 fans packing into Eden Park for the opening triple header. In about half an hour, the main event, for most of the local fans at least, the Black Ferns taking to the field against Australia with the weight of a nation on their shoulders. And the weight of the nation was also on the couches watching that news bulletin on TV. And TVNZ sports presenter Abby Wilson urged them to stay there and stay tuned, closing the bulletin like this. 
And the live sport continues tonight right here on TVNZ1 after the news with the Black Caps and their build-up to the T20 World Cup. So much live sport around. Yeah. Rugby, cricket on here, TV1. Yeah, so cricket straight after the news. Yeah, settle in, watch well, it. All right. Now, another sporting code is, of course, under no obligation not to put a match on at the same time, but there was no uproar about that at the time. Yet not so this week when another overlap came to light for this weekend's World Cup quarterfinal, as Morning Report's Corinne. Dan pointed out on Wednesday to sports presenter Scotty Stevenson. Saturday afternoon, we're going to have a clash with the Japanese game against the All Blacks. Oh, this, this is incredible, this story. Uh, yeah, we have known for more than a year that this was always going to be the quarterfinal the Black Ferns play. New Zealand rugby has designed a clash between the Black Ferns and the All Blacks, and that is scarcely believable to me. It cannot be accidental, and if it is intentional, then some questions need to be asked. So questions were asked about whether that was by design or whether New Zealand rugby had showed they couldn't design a booze-up in a brewery. On News Hub at 6 on Wednesday, Ollie Ritchie put awkward questions to New Zealand rugby's Chris Lindrum. Should New Zealand rugby not be across when the Black Ferns quarterfinal would be at a World Cup? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and we were. Um, but uh, as I said, not... Um, but you weren't, though, because... As an, as, as an organisation, we were aware of it, but the, the right people um, weren't aware of it. And as the spin-off's Anna Rafferty Connell pointed out, all that could have been avoided with a $3.99 wall planner from the warehouse. And her co-editor Madeline Chapman pointed out, in the absence of a statement from New Zealand Rugby earlier in the day, the Blackferns Kendra Coxedge and Sarah Hidney were left to face awkward questions in their regular press conference. Uh, who should people watch, the All Blacks or the Blackferns? Well, if, you're, <laughs> if you're turning up to the game, then you can only watch the Blackferns and watch the All Blacks replay later. Now, Stuff called that a cheeky suggestion and a rather patronising headline that wasn't online for long, replaced by headlines about more ropeable reactions, after which Stuff launched a live blog headlined Fixture Clash, The Fallout. And there was a fair amount of fallout to go round, and eventually it forced New Zealand Rugby to explain that, as Madeline Chapman of the spin-off put it, New Zealand Rugby basically forgot that the Black Ferns were playing. Now, while NewsHub led their sports bulletin with that snafu, TVNZ only mentioned it in passing that night. They didn't take into account that the two games would overlap. Efforts were made to shift the Tokyo Games kickoff time, but Japan rugby was unable to make it work. And while watching players overlapping on the pitch can be a thrill, not so two overlapping games on TV. But the TVNZ sports department that night were preoccupied by another surprise story about rugby on the screen, or in this case... Not. Pokemon, welcome back to sport. The days of top level first 15 rugby being live broadcast are over, in Auckland at least, with principals of the 1A schools banning coverage for next year. It's a controversial topic with today's announcement playing out in a bizarre way. How bizarre? Well, Abby Wilson explained, waving a piece of paper at the camera. Hi Chris, we heard murmurings of this this morning, so of course put in calls to those directly involved who pretty much shut it down the story, almost said there's nothing to see here. Three o'clock rolls round, school bell goes, this email turns up in our inbox from a generic 1A principal's email address saying that they are indeed banning the live broadcast of first 15 games at their schools. So why have the top bods at the top schools in Auckland pulled their top teams from TV coverage? The negative impacts that the high scrutiny and increased pressure can have on these players. It even uses the word exploitation in the release. 
On News Talk ZB shortly after that, Scotty Stevenson told ZB's Darcy Waldegrave most people would agree with this move to cool down what he called overheated and overhyped schoolboy rugby. Uh, I couldn't afford this decision more. And it probably keeps the scouts from the door as well, doesn't it? The more access they've got to footage, the more likely they are to come in and plunder young players who are probably better off dealing with acne and puberty than that. (laughs) But not everyone commenting on the media was on side. Commentator Ken Laban with us on this. Ken, morning. Good morning, Mike. Would you make the same call? No. More work, more of the cancel culture. Um, a decision that's incomprehensible. So what are they going to do now, Mike? If you've got a son or you and I have got a grandson who's playing and we want to watch him play and we send one of the family members down with the phone to record the kid playing, what are they going to do? They're going to get security now to have, have our family member thrown out of the ground. Now, no one was suggesting that, but the voice of college rugby, Ken Laban, went on to tell Newstalk ZB he saw no harm in the TV coverage of the games. But discontent about live coverage on TV and online isn't new, and not just for Auckland schools rugby. Two years ago, around 50 sports organisations did a deal with Rob Waddell's New Zealand Sports Collective Company, giving them exclusive sponsorship and marketing rights. Sky Television backed the project with $10 million over three years and the online platform for this, Sky Sport Next. The Sky chief executive at that time, Martin Stewart, said this was a way to give back to our communities and support sports that didn't get a whole lot of media exposure. But other people didn't want kids' sport commodified like that. One of them was sportscaster Martin Devlin, who at the time said that he and other psycho parents, in his words, were prepared to even disrupt the broadcasts. Be warned, Sky Sport, you've got a, a psycho bunch of parents on your hands here. We've got banners. We are going to go, OK? And, and what are you going to do to stop us? Call the police? You can't do that. I have every right to protest against this, and I will. Well, two years on, there are still plenty of junior sports on the Sky Sport Next platform, even though Auckland's principals have now decided it's a mistake for their first 15s. And speaking of mistakes, the All Blacks head of professional rugby, Chris Lendrum, and formerly called the NZR's Mr Fixit in the media, told News Hub this after eventually explaining their All Blacks Black Ferns scheduling error. It's only a mistake if you make it twice, right? Um, I think we're testing the boundaries of that uh, saying here. Not exactly an attitude you'd expect to hear from any professional sports person, only those in admin, perhaps, who act in error. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, but we'll be back with more on the media after the 10pm news next Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch talking to Karen Hay on nights. And then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.